Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to The Readout. We have a lot of breaking news tonight, and none of it... Sounds very good for the twice impeached, twice indicted, or should I say soon to be thrice indicted former president. That is because NBC News has confirmed that special counsel Jack Smith has informed Trump that he is a target of the special counsel's investigation into efforts to overturn the 2020 election. Trump decided to break the news himself via social media post, just as he has done with most of his other recent legal woes. And being named a target almost certainly means he will face arrest and his third indictment this year. But this indictment would be far different. Never in the 247-year history of this country have we faced what Trump attempted to orchestrate, a former president doing everything possible to overturn a free and fair election to try to stay in power, including unleashing a violent mob of his supporters on the U.S. Capitol, supporters who were even calling for the hanging of his own vice president. Meanwhile, just today in Michigan, the 16 fake electors Trump tried to use to claim he had actually won that state were all indicted for their participation. This comes as lawyers for the former president and the special counsel were battling it out today in a Florida courtroom in front of Trump-appointed Judge Aileen Cannon over whether Trump could postpone the trial in the classified documents case until after the 2024 election. But unlike that case, a potential jury trial in this January 6th investigation would take place here in Washington, D.C., and would probably not be argued in front of a judge who has shown more favor to the man who appointed her than to the law she swore to uphold. Joining me now is former Senator Doug Jones, distinguished senior fellow at the Center for American Progress. Barbara McQuaid, professor at the University of Michigan Law School and MSNBC legal analyst. And attorney Kendall Coffey, all three of my guests are former U.S. attorneys. Thank you all for being here. And Barbara, I'm going to go to you first because you have the great distinction of inspiring a very fascinating memo um, that was sort of a model prosecution memo that Just Security put together. And they, it was inspired in part by your work. Um, and so I want to ask you to sort of talk us through some of the potential charges that this could be. Now, we don't know what they are. They will th theoretically be a speaking indictment. But just to go through what that memo said, they said a couple of things. There could be conspiracy to defraud the United States, obstruction of an official proceeding, inciting an insurrection and giving aid or comfort to insurrectionists. If you had to guess today, what would you speculate these charges could be? Well, Joy, I'd say the first two that you mentioned seem to me almost a certainty. Conspiracy to defraud the United States. That is a charge that prosecutors use in all sorts of contexts when someone uses lies to try to interfere with a government process. It's done in tax cases. Uh, it's done in other cases. And here, the theory would be that Donald Trump lied about a stolen election in order to uh, obstruct or impede the lawful transfer of presidential power. 
The second charge that you mentioned about obstruction of an official proceeding also seems like a likely charge. It's one that has been filed against some of the other people who were at the Capitol on January 6th. And it means to corruptly interfere with an official proceeding. That is that joint session of Congress when the certification of the election was going to occur. Those strike me as the two easy ones based on all that we know. The harder one and the one I will be really fascinated to see whether Jack Smith charges is inciting insurrection. This is one that is rarely charged, and it is because we have such a high barrier under the First Amendment as to what counts as protected speech and what crosses that line. I think some would argue that the speech at the ellipse may cross that line. I'm not so sure because of the insertion of the word peaceful here and there. But I think an interesting theory might be the 2.24 p.m. tweet that Donald Trump sends after the Capitol is under attack about Mike Pence not having the courage to do his duty. And sitting for 187 minutes, watching the violence unfold and taking no action. So that could be that aid and comfort to insurrectionists. So that's that third charge there, the insurrection piece that I'll really be looking for. And that one is the only charge that could potentially bring with it disqualification from serving as president in the future. And and I noticed that one thing that was not in the memo, Barb, um, and that is not in your list is seditious conspiracy, which we know, Jack, you know, the the, the DOJ has is. They're pretty much batting a thousand on seditious conspiracy convictions of insurrectionists, Oath Keepers and Proud Boys. Is there a reason that that does not seem to be anyone's take on what Donald Trump could theoretically face? So all that I am able to speak about or that these prosecutors who wrote this model memo are able to speak about is evidence in the public domain. And so what you would need to see is some public evidence that Trump and others were conspiring with the Proud Boys or the Oath Keepers uh, planning that violent attack. You know, we see some urging, we see perhaps some coincidence, we see some overlap and some connections, but unless you have evidence that they actively participated and entered the agreement to engage in violence to stop the transfer of presidential power with those uh, militia groups, then I don't think the case is there yet. Now, it may very well be that Jack Smith does have evidence that he's obtained through the grand jury process that is not yet in the public domain. If so, then seditious conspiracy could be on the table as well. Uh, let, let me play something that Liz Cheney said during the January 6th hearings, because at the time it was kind of a bombshell. I was uh, sitting there uh, next to Rachel Maddow uh, and Nicole Wallace, and we all went, huh? It was interesting, because it sounded like she was presaging something that also could land at the DOJ. That, uh, and so let me just play what she said. And this was a warning at the end. Remember, she did those like teases at the end uh, of each hearing, and this was one of them. After our last hearing, President Trump tried to call a witness in our investigation, a witness you have not yet seen in these hearings. That person declined to answer or respond to President Trump's call and instead alerted their lawyer to the call. Their lawyer alerted us, and this committee has supplied that information to the Department of Justice. Let me say one more time, We will take any effort to influence witness testimony very seriously. And Doug Jones, the presumption at the time is that that was Cassidy Hutchinson that they were talking about, who used to be represented by lawyers Donald Trump was paying for. That's a familiar situation, but then got her own attorneys and decided to testify truthfully before the committee. Do you see potential charges regarding that intimidation of a witness? Yeah, well, it's like Barb said, we don't really know what's in the, you know, what Jack Smith has. We do know as former prosecutors 
He's got a hell of a lot more than what January 6 made public. There, the, the committee made public. There is no doubt in my mind about that. We don't know who has since cooperated, who's been offered any kind of deal. So that may or may not have happened. But I think that the Congressman Cheney's uh, comments clearly presage something that has been going on. And that was no surprise to people that the former president may be contacting people on his own, calling people, doing whatever. That just seemed kind of obvious. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that it would rise to the level of obstruction or tampering with a witness. Those are pretty serious charges, too, that they need to look very seriously at. But, but clearly, it is something that I think has been on the, the radar of the special counsel uh, throughout this investigation. Yeah, and Kendall Coffee, it's good to see you. It's been a long time, too long. Uh, but I, I can remember uh, consulting with you back in the day when I used to reach out to you to get uh, advice on sort of when legal sort of stuff would come along. So it's great to talk with you. And I remember you saying that, you know, the way that prosecutors look, particularly at public corruption cases, is that they don't go big. They go with what they can win on. They'd rather win than have a dramatic charge. Do you, so would you speculate that looking at all of the range of what you've just heard, that it would be the Occam's razor case, the simpler case? Cases, the obstruction of an official proceeding, conspiracy to defraud, the stuff that's pretty obvious rather than something more dramatic like a seditious conspiracy charge. That's how I would go about it, because potentially there's a huge sea, as, as Doug was talking about, of potential cooperators. So many people charged, so many people involved. And this could be something that sprawls and goes on for months, if not years. But there seems to be a pretty narrow and effective path for prosecutors to follow the things we've been talking about, obstruction of an official proceeding, various falsifications, false slates, false electors. I think a prosecutor wants to get a conviction and get this thing moved to a trial within a reasonable amount of time would head in that direction. And let's just play some of the people who also seem to know what was going on, who we don't know if anyone else got a uh, a target letter because the rest of them probably wouldn't go on Truth Social. Well, nobody else goes on Truth Social except Donald Trump or go on social media and say that they got said target letter. But here are a few people who participated in some way. And this was people who spoke on January 5th about what was happening then and what would happen the next day. All hell is going to break loose tomorrow. It's all converging. And now we're on, as they say, the point of attack. Right. The point of attack tomorrow. It's not going to happen like you think it's going to happen. OK, it's going to be quite extraordinarily different. And all I can say is strap in. All we are demanding of Vice President Pence is this afternoon at one o'clock. He let the legislatures of the state look into this so we get to the bottom of it. So let's have trial by combat. Okay, and and we and keeping in mind that you know we don't know whether any of those folks is a target, but um, former Senator Jones, uh, is there somebody there who ought to be a bit worried, knowing that Donald Trump has received a target letter in your mind? Any of those three: Rudy Giuliani, Steve Bannon, uh, John Eastman. Hell, Joy, they all ought to be worried. <laughs> I mean, and there's probably a, several more that need to be worried about this. I mean, this this was not limited to those three. I mean, there were people in those meetings. There were people back and forth. We don't know what uh, communications may have been occurring between any of those that have been convicted. That's the one thing the January 6th committee never was able to get. And that is those people that have either been found guilty, pled guilty, uh, that are now maybe cooperating. As, as Kendall just said, 
there is a sea of possibilities out there uh, in a just the conspiracy, the largest, uh, largest investigation that the Department of Justice has ever done. So, yeah, I think anybody that was anywhere near the proximity of the Oval Office and Donald Trump ought to have some concerns about this uh, going forward. I think they've had them, by the way, not just with the with the target letter. I think they've had those concerns. Uh, and, and I've got a whole list and I'm going to hold it till uh, we're going to take a quick break. And then when I come back, I'm going to put up my list of other people who are maybe ought to be a bit concerned as well. And my distinguished panel is staying right here with me because up next on the readout, Judge Aileen Cannon presides over her first hearing in the Trump classified documents case. So was this a reformed, chastened federal judge ready to base a ruling solely on the letter of the law or something else entirely? The readout continues after this. Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home. Hi everyone, it's Katie Fang. Did you know my weekly show on MSNBC is now available as a podcast? With my decades of experience as a trial lawyer, you'll get an insider's perspective on all things legal. At a time when politics and the law are inextricably intertwined, my guests and I break down what's next and why it matters, both inside and outside the courtroom. Search for The Katie Fang Show wherever you're listening and follow. with me are former Senator Doug Jones, Barbara McQuaid, and Kendall Coffey. All three are former U.S. attorneys. Barbara, I'm going to put up this list for you. Um, and, and it is interesting that the, the only target letter did that we know of went to Donald Trump. Um, but there are lots of potential witnesses, lots of people who testified in the January 6th probe, including obviously Vice President Pence, Mark Short, who was one of his aides. You can go all the way through it to some of the people who seem a little bit more at risk. Obviously, John Eastman, um, you had people like Pat Cipollone, who were White House counsel, who was trying to counsel them to stand down. Justin Clark, who was involved in trying to put a new attorney general in or be the new attorney general who would do the bidding uh, of Donald Trump. So you can just go all the way through it. You have, you know, people at small parts of uh, involvement like Newt Gingrich, people like Ali Alexander, who were named like Andy Biggs was named as, you know, participants. Do you see can you do you is there anyone who stands out to you as somebody who would be the Waltine Nada in this case, meaning that if Donald Trump um, committed a conspiracy to, you know, obstruct and defraud the United States, that implies he did it with someone. So is there somebody who seems obvious to be to play Waltine Nada's role here? Yes, but I don't know if it's anybody on that list that you just showed of people who testified before the grand jury. When a client gets uh, a subpoena to testify before the grand jury, a good lawyer will call the prosecutor and ask, is my client a target? And usually if the answer is yes, they tend not to come testify. So the fact that they've testified before the grand jury raises at least some inference that they are not likely to be targets. Now, it could be that they came in and testified and lied and they're being charged with a crime or that they have some sort of a, a deal where they're going to plead guilty to some crime and not others. But I would be more curious about the people who's not on that list, the people whose names you did not show there, um, and you know some of the people in Donald Trump's inner circle. I guess I don't want to speculate on who may or may not have sure. been charged with a crime and guilty of a crime. But 
I would think that the people closest to Donald Trump who did not testify at the grand jury ought to be the ones a little bit shaking in their boots tonight as to whether they are also being targets. They've probably also received target letters. In fact, here's a bit of speculation I will engage in. You know, there's been reporting that Rudy Giuliani went in and spoke with prosecutors in some proper sessions in recent weeks. That might have been in response to a target letter. And he said, you know, uh, we don't want to go to the grand jury, but with if you give us some assurances that you won't use his statements against him, he'll come in and talk with you. So I'd like you would be very surprised if Trump is the only defendant named in this indictment. Sure. But my guess is the people who are included are the people who have not testified before the grand jury. I'm always fascinated by Mark Meadows, uh, where he stands in all of this, because he seems like he's either prime witness for the prosecution or he's going down. Like, I, I, I don't see how it's one or the other. I'm obviously not a lawyer, so I wouldn't know. But I do want to just for a moment talk about Judge Aileen Cannon, Kendall. Um, so she has this hearing today. The way that it seemed to play out, and I'll just um, I'll, I'll pull what was reported in the Washington Post. Um, she appeared skeptical today about the former president's request that the trial be delayed until after the 2024 election, though she also appeared wary of prosecutors' request to begin the proceedings this year. There was an argument that was made by the defense that they should start come back in November and then set a date. They obviously want to delay it as long as possible. Can you talk a little bit about sequencing? You know, if, if because Jack Smith's process, you know, he's got he's in both of these cases. Does he want to see this January 6th trial, do you think, happen first or the other one first or does it matter? I think he wants to get to trial as fast as possible. He's got two different judges right now, and he's going to see which one gives him the opportunity. As we know, Judge Cannon's case is a SEPA case. Pretty hard to get those to trial in in seven or eight months. But she is not going to want to be recorded in her legacy as a judicial shill for Donald Trump. She's going to want to get this right if she can. And I think the fact that she's saying kind of a soft no to the prosecution, and I think a pretty definite no to the defense's wish that she be basically give them a pass all the way till 2025 tells you that she is going to get this case to trial and it could very well be somewhere toward the end of the first quarter of 2024. And Doug Jones, I didn't want to talk a little about juries um, because obviously a jury that you impanel here in D.C. is going to be a lot more racially diverse. This is a largely African-American city. And same with the case in New York. You're not going to get a full MAGA jury. Um, does that weigh on Jack Smith's sort of calculations of which case is more winnable, because there is a likelihood that a jury in that part of Florida would be very MAGA friendly. The one in D.C. would likely be something else. You know, Joy, if, if that was weighing that heavily, I think he would have waited on the cases. I, he, he went ahead and indicted a case. And when a prosecutor gets to a point where they've got an indictment, you can count on the fact they're pretty much ready for trial. It is just a question of getting the documents to the defense, making sure they have everything that they've got there. They've done their legal homework to know that uh, what is anticipated. So I, I think they've made that ca- calculation that they feel that they're OK uh, in that particular district. There will be a ton of jury work that goes on on this. This case will be, I, I guarantee you both sides are going to be flashback in those drawers that ultimately get selected for this. They're going to be picking through. And remember, there's going to be so many people that have heard about things, whatever uh, they, 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 they voted for, they voted against. But the issue that the judge is going to come down to is say, can you be fair? Can you put, put aside what you know? Can you put aside any prejudices for or against the defendant, for or against the government, and give both sides a fair trial? And Judge 
the evidence and the law. And it, when people start shaking their head, yes, mm. it's really, you know, you, you've just got to hope that you've got a fair jury uh, at the end of the day, because when they sit down in that jury and they take the oath, you never know until the jury uh, verdict comes in. And real quick, Kendall, the, I mean, the, right. It seems like jurors become very civic minded once they get that trial, that case. Right. No matter even if they came in MAGA, we saw that in the uh, in the case of the E. Jean Carroll case. There were a couple of people who had declared themselves to be very pro-Trump. They still voted against him. Yeah. And I, I think that when they're inside the courtroom, they get very, very focused on what's going on in the courtroom. They're looking at the witnesses. They're studying everything. And ultimately, they want to get it right. They got to right. go home. They got to face their children, their family. They want to get it right. Last word to you on this, Barb. There was the word superseding indictment was voiced by the defense um, in trying to push the trial back really quickly. What is that? And could that change the way all of this looks right now? A superseding indictment would be a second indictment that adds charges or defendants. We don't know whether that will happen. If it does happen and it requires additional preparation, that could be a reason for additional delay. Uh, this is fascinating stuff. It's like taking like a mini law class talking to you guys because you guys are so smart. And uh, we really appreciate you being here. Former Senator Doug Jones, Kendall Coffey and Barb McQuaid, uh, who is going to stick around a little bit longer. Still ahead, the Michigan Attorney General announces new charges against the 16 fake electors from that state as Georgia's Supreme Court deals another blow to Trump's attempts to duck, dip and dodge his way out of that mess. Back in a sec. Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners and more all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home. Join MSNBC's Simone Sanders Townsend, Michael Steele, and Alicia Menendez as they team up to host The Weeknd. We want to get the newsmakers, the people that are in the middle of what is happening. It's about the conversation. A lot of Americans check out of conversations. We want to check them in. Conversation we begin and that you continue all week long. The Weeknd, Saturdays and Sundays at 8 a.m. Eastern on MSNBC. Another day, another looming indictment for Donald J. Trump, but he's not the only one facing legal trouble. Late today, Michigan Attorney General Dana Nessel announced felony charges against 16 Michigan Republicans who signed paperwork falsely claiming that Trump had won the 2020 election. The 16 people each face eight charges, including conspiracy and election law forgery. Here is video from December 2020 showing a crowd of fake electors trying to enter the state capitol to cast their fabricated electoral votes for Trump. They were denied entry because the actual legal electors who were there to cast their ballots for Joe Biden and Kamala Harris were already inside. Per the Michigan Attorney General, the fake electors allegedly met in the basement of the state's Republican Party headquarters and signed multiple certificates claiming that they were the duly elected and qualified electors for president and vice president of the United States of America for the state of Michigan. And that, A.G. Nessel said, was a lie. The false electors' actions undermine the public's faith in the integrity of our elections 
and not only violated the spirit of the laws enshrining and defending our democracy, but we believe also plainly violated the laws by which we administer our elections in Michigan and peaceably transfer power in America. Back with me is Barbara McQuaid, who is a former U.S. attorney in Michigan. And Barb, okay, so we know that in November um, of 2020, and this is after the election was over, Donald Trump invited some Michigan lawmakers to come to the White House. He called in a key county saying, hey, I want you to come out there. The invitation came after he had called Republican members of the canvassing board, including Detroit, um, who then later sought to rescind their vote certification. So we know in November, he's trying to get Michigan lawmakers lawmakers to change the outcome of the election. But then in December, December 14th is the date when the Electoral College formally meets and does and does what they do. Now you've got these fake electors who are not these people. These are totally different people going in and signing these certifications. So that is the crime they're being charged for. Is that also a federal crime? Because I, I, I am fascinated by the fact that you have two states, Georgia and Michigan, where people are being either you know, potentially indicted or indicted for this fake elector scheme. But is that also a federal crime? And could this somehow bleed into all that's happening in the January 6th cases? Yes. In fact, I would be surprised if we did not see the inclusion of the fake elector scheme in a federal indictment. In fact, Attorney General Nessel, when she first discovered the fake electors out of Michigan, shared that information with the Justice Department and said, you might want to look into this. This is probably part of the investigation you're looking into. But uh, she said that she got frustrated waiting around for them to uh, file an indictment and decided, well, they've also violated Michigan law in her understanding. Uh, And so because we live in a system of what's sometimes referred to as dual sovereignty, we have state laws and we have federal laws. Uh, There are a number of federal laws in addition to state laws that were violated. So here she charged things like forgery and uttering and publishing, conspiracy to commit forgery, uh, election fraud. Uh, regardless of what other charges are filed against Donald Trump and these electors for uh, engaging in perhaps a nationwide conspiracy, right here in Michigan, these 16, according to the charges filed today, engage in their own little conspiracy to say, we're the duly elected electors of Michigan and we cast our votes for Donald Trump. That was a lie. And that was submitted. And so it's a, it's a crime under Michigan law. It is a crime under federal law. And it could be that these 16 people find themselves charged in both places. Or okay. it may be that in the federal yeah. case, it's just the people who orchestrated it as opposed to sure. those who also suffered. And some of these people were like, they should have known better. Like some one person is the a grassroots vice chair of the Republican Party there. Um, there's a, somebody who's a mayor of a, of a small town in Michigan, one of the co-chairs of the Michigan Republican Party. So these people should know better. OK, now here's the here's the bigger question. You've now got the Supreme Court in Georgia letting, you know, dismissing Donald Trump's claim that uh, Fonnie Willis has to be booted off the case. That can't go through. So so let's say there is a, you know, state indictment of a bunch of fake electors in Georgia. You now have this indictment in Michigan of fake electors in Michigan. If you're Jack Smith, do you want those cases to go before your case or do you want to have your own case? If you're in the Justice Department, do these state cases hurt your effort or enhance it? Well, I think you always want to take the lead. You don't want to get behind anybody in line. I would think that if Bonnie Willis beats Jack Smith to an indictment, she might have her say in terms of the timing. You know, next year is going to be a busy year uh, with the the, the trial in Manhattan, plus the Mar-a-Lago, plus perhaps a Georgia, and now maybe a January 6th case. So I think that uh, Jack Smith probably wants to get ahead of them. They're probably communicating a little bit just for heads up purposes, but you know, so they don't step on each other. 
But uh, each one is going to file their case when it's ready. I think every prosecutor wants to be as timely as possible with a passage of every day. Witness memories fade and right. the ability to gather evidence diminishes. So you want to charge as quickly as you can, but it just takes time to pull it all together. And so uh, I would imagine that yeah, each of them will simply file their charges when they're ready. It, it, OK, well, I have so many more questions. <laughs> OK, I'm going to have to have you come back because I have like another hour of questions. So I'll just I'll just have you come back and I'll ask in that time. Uh, Barbara Quaid, thank you. You're an MVP. We so appreciate you. Thank you. And coming up. Thank you, Thank you. Okay, what do you do when you're the so-called law and order party and the leader of your party, Donald Trump, finds himself in so much trouble with the law? Well, that's easy. You just become the defund the DOJ and the FBI party. Simple. We'll be right back. Pastor Gates had reached out to me to ask if he could have a meeting with Mr. Meadows about receiving a presidential pardon. Mr. Jordan talked about congressional pardons, but he never asked me for one. It was more for an update on whether the White House is going to pardon members of Congress. Mr. Gomer asked for one as well. And Mr. Perry asked for a pardon too. I'm sorry, I need to cut you off. Mr. Perry, did he forgot him. Yes, he did. Donald Trump did not orchestrate the attempted overthrow of a Democratic election by himself. He had a cabal of House Republicans as his congressional henchmen, and he rallied them at the White House a few weeks before certification just to make sure that they were all on the same page. Those 11 Republicans and many more in the House were Trump's happy little warriors until hundreds of deranged MAGA supporters stormed the Capitol looking for blood, forcing them and their staffers to flee. Today, these people who literally ran from Trump supporters are running towards Trump and ditching the oath they took to uphold the Constitution against all enemies foreign or domestic. Foremost among them is House Speaker Kevin McCarthy, who went from being tired of Trump to just being tired of justice. I've had it with this guy. Uh, what he did is unacceptable. Um, nobody can defend that and nobody should defend it. I think the American public is tired of this. They want to have see equal justice and the idea that they utilize this to go after those who politically disagree with them is wrong. Joining me now is Congressman Eric Swalwell of California, who was a House manager in Trump's second impeachment. What does Trump have on that guy? Yeah, I mean, well, he made him speaker, right? Yeah. Uh, you saw Marjorie Taylor Greene waving her phone around after the 15th vote That's when she boss. was, yeah, she, she was passing the phone to all the holdouts. So he's got the job title. Marjorie Taylor Greene has the job, right? Let's be real. Right. Uh, and I, I think he just wants to have that like placard hanging over his office. I, I don't think he really has any core set of, of principles. Yeah. yeah, he's got the job. Uh, he runs the largest law firm in Washington, D.C., you know, Insurrection <laughs> LLC, which uh, has one client, Donald yeah. Trump, and they do his bidding every day. But what is so disturbing about what he just said there is just because he is corrupt and his colleagues are corrupt mm -hmm. doesn't mean the prosecutors are corrupt, right? So they project onto the prosecutors the way that they would handle this, right. which is, you know, we would, you know, we would, of course, go after our political opponents if we were in power. Right. So they think that's what these prosecutors are doing. Well, I mean, ironically, Donald Trump is vowing to do that. Like, that yes. if he becomes president, he's saying, I'm going to do what he's now accusing this Justice Department of doing, which they're not. Uh, let, let's talk about some of your colleagues. Uh, we heard Cassidy Hutchinson naming several people who asked for pardons. Can you think of a, as a former prosecutor yourself, of a reason to ask for a pardon if you did nothing wrong and had nothing to do with the insurrection? No. Okay. And so are there any of them who you suspect um, might 
need a pardon still. Well, well look, the, the, these guys were accomplices in an attempted overthrow of our government. And, and by the way, I think this isn't talked about enough. This was a blowout election. <laughs> like Joe Biden yeah. won by nearly 8 million Correct. popular votes uh, and ran the table in many of mm-hmm. these, you know, toss-up states. This mm-hmm. wasn't Florida 2000 no. uh, to take us back there. No, this was no. a blowout election mm-hmm. uh, by, you know, all proportions. And they still uh, were not willing to give up power. So, yes, it, it became kind of like this pardon grab bag where they all yeah. uh, in desperation because of their own, you know, culpability uh, were desperately seeking uh, to escape accountability. Let's talk about Barry Loudermilk. Um, he is on the House Financial Services Committee and the, the committee tour guide. On, yeah. The tour guide, House administration. It, his uh, committee oversees capital security. Here he is giving a tour to some folks who wound up being members of the crowd that stormed the Capitol. I, I wonder how it feels for you to serve with people who may be aided and abetted um, putting your, you and your staff some of these are 20-something-year-old kids at risk, and all of those police officers who they then turned around and said, we don't even want to vote to give them medals for not letting people kill us. Yeah, well, I'll just say, as the brother to two police officers, um, it's especially crushing because Mm -hmm. it was always hard for me to go home and and defend Democrats against my family who thought that Democrats didn't back the police Mm -hmm. enough, and then to see these guys the second— uh, that the police defended the Capitol against Donald Trump's friends. Right. Uh, they weren't back in the blue. They were back in the coup. Mm-hmm. And so that that is personally uh, crushing. But as far as a colleague doing this, like, tell me what's changed. Like, what right. what has got what has Speaker McCarthy done to make us safer, or the circumstances less likely that this would happen again? If anything, right. uh, I, I think he's just put a bunch of green lights around the Capitol that. Uh, this is okay, and there's not going to be accountability. And, and I do want to put up the list of people who did vote against, because I think this was one of the most shameful days um, uh, in Republican Party history, to be honest with you. This was a congressional gold medal that was awarded to all the officers who responded on January 6th, uh, some of whom are dead um, because they were brave and tried to do what police are supposed to do. Andy Biggs, Lauren Boebert, Michael Cloud, Andrew Clyde, who was said it was a tourist event, normal tourism, but he was hiding behind a police officer on that day who had his gun out. Matt Gates, Warren Davidson, Lori, Louis Gohmert, Bob Good, Paul Gosar, Marjorie Green, of course, Andy Harris, Jody Heiss, Thomas Massey, Mary Miller, Barry Moore. Have any of them that are still serving expressed, even in private, second thoughts about backing the insurrection, knowing that they also ran? No, worse, uh, they go to the D.C. jail uh, to give you know comfort and aid uh, to the insurrectionists who attacked the Capitol, who attacked those uh, police officers. And, and I'm telling you, Joy, the only way, the only antidote uh, to all of this is unity, uh, where Republicans and Democrats are going to condemn political violence, uh, where we're going to condemn uh, the rhetoric, and we're not going to politicize, you know, the good people in law, or in law enforcement who are just trying to you know, apply the facts to the law. And- uh, what do you what do you make us from a prosecutor of the indictment of the elite? Well, of the potential uh, pending indictment, Donald Trump getting a target letter. Um, is the is there anyone if if you were prosecuted yeah. this case, who else would you send a letter to? Well, anyone who worked with Donald Trump, uh, you know, to aim a mob at the Capitol or to try and undermine the credibility of the election through fake electors. But as a prosecutor, my closing argument would have been would be quite simple. I would ask a jury. If you took Donald Trump out of the equation, if he had conceded when Mitch McConnell conceded after the right. electors in the states uh, convened, if he had conceded after the press had called the election, yeah. uh, if he had conceded, you know, after uh, he had lost every lawsuit, 
if he had done that, would January 6th still have happened? And I think Good the question. answer is it wouldn't. Uh, he Only he could have convened uh, so, so many in such a violent way to attack the Capitol. Let me, I'd like to ask this of this guy. Uh, here's Mike Pence. Do you think that was an insurrection? It was a tragic day. Um, I've never used the word insurrection, Tucker, over the last two years, but it was a riot that took place at the Capitol that day. I don't get it. I don't get it. They, they, they tried to kill him. They wanted to hang him. They brought a noose. Yeah. Uh, a non-insurrection uh, riot. Right. Who does he uh, think is voting for? Do you understand? Yeah. Does, does, can you explain <laughs> to no, your logic? <laughs> no. Uh, it's the same reason that he accepted, I, I think, the vice presidential role, which is he wanted to be president and is seeking any vehicle. Uh, I'm, I'm glad he did what he did that day. Sure. But had he done something like that much earlier, uh, maybe— January 6th never would have happened. Yeah. And have you spoken with, um, I, I, I did speak with one um, Capitol Police officer today who, you know, said, you know, rather than feeling like happy that this potential indictment is coming, it just made him feel angrier. Have you spoken with other officers and how are yeah. they feeling today? Yeah. Uh, recently had a beer with uh, Mike Fanone, um, you know, who is still a subject of the attacks from the Daily. right uh, every day. And for them, it's just justice. Um, I, I don't think they're rooting for Donald Trump to be in handcuffs. No. I think they just want to know that he's going to be treated the same as everyone else, and he's not mm -hmm. going to be treated better and even worse uh, because of who he is. Uh, Congressman Eric Swallow, thank you very yeah, much. My pleasure. Much appreciate Thanks, it. Joy. Always good to see you. Are still ahead. Uh, President Biden welcomes President Her. And in amid increasing tensions both outside and inside of his country. More next. Today, Israeli President Isaac Herzog met with President Biden at the White House. Herzog is set to address a joint meeting of Congress tomorrow, which some progressive lawmakers are planning to boycott due to the country's treatment of the Palestinian people. Israel continues to encroach on the West Bank by expanding settlements on Palestinian land. And earlier this month, the Israeli army raided the West Bank city of Jenin in its biggest military action in years, claiming it was a counterterrorism effort. The president of Israel isn't actually the head of government. That is Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, who leads the most right-wing government in the country's history, which includes continuing to expand the settlements. He's also attempting to completely overhaul and take control of the country's judicial system, which Israelis have been protesting for months. Amid all of this, President Biden announced yesterday that he has invited Netanyahu to the White House. And joining me now is Peter Beinar, editor-at-large at Jewish Currents and MSNBC political analyst. It's always great to talk to you, Peter. Um, let's talk about this. This is a far-right-wing government. It includes a, a gentleman named Itamar Ben-Gavir, who's the minister— I guess, of securities in charge of the police. Um, and this is what uh, I will read about him from The New Yorker. Itamar Gavir's role model and ideological wellspring has long been Meyer Kahana. Kahana argued that the idea of a democratic Jewish state is nonsense. To Kahara, Arabs were dogs who must sit quietly or get the hell out. Um, and for those from New York, we remember Meyer, who Meyer Kahana is, but most people don't. What does it mean to have an advocate, a, a sort of acolyte of the late Meyer Kahana in the government and— Netanyahu's current stance. 
The fundamental reality is that in the West Bank, you have Jews and Palestinians living side by side, but under completely different legal systems. The Jews are citizens of the state of Israel. They can vote for its government. They have free movement. They have due process. The Palestinians have none of those rights. They live under military law. They need a military permission to travel, for instance, from the West Bank into Jerusalem. So what Itamar Ben-Gavir believes is that, that that's not harsh enough. Right. This is already what's been characterized by Israel's own human rights organizations as apartheid. But Itamar Ben-Gavir wants to go further. And I think if you look carefully at what he's written and what some other very far right leaders in this Israeli government have written, their long term goal is the expulsion of Palestinians from the West Bank. And, and I just want to put up a couple of maps because. The occupation is in and of itself illegal, right? I mean, the U.N. has been very clear there's supposed to be an Israel and a Palestine. But let me just show you the West Bank. The West Bank is supposed to be this little stri this whole strip that you see there. All those red dots and parts of it are the settlements. You could actually make that bigger because there's also a whole line, a whole big, big area that comprises about 60 percent of the West Bank that is also used for security zones and uh, nature preservatories and all sorts of ways of saying Palestinians basically have almost nothing left. If you look at the map of Gaza, it's basically like a, a, an open air prison. Palestinians who typically would be fisher fishermen um, would, would fish in uh, the, the the water that you see there. They can't because if they go a certain amount, they get shot. It's it's impossible for people to survive this way. How has the international community done nothing about this? Uh, it's been decades and decades of this. It's it's worse than that. The United States funds this. The United States gives Israel $3.8 billion of essentially unconditional military aid a year. And the United States ensures at the UN, at the International Criminal Court, that there is total impunity, that there can never be investigations by the international bodies of what Israel's doing. And look, there are a lot of Americans who have a very, very deep connection to Israel and see, because of the suffering of Jews throughout history, a sense of solidarity and concern for those people. You don't need to tell me, uh, you know, uh, I was raised my entire life with with those feelings. I care desperately about the welfare of, the, of, of my own people, but it is not in the long term interests of it will not keep Jews safe in the long term to brutalize and subjugate Palestinians, just like it didn't in the long, wasn't in the long term safety and self interest of white people to brutalize black people in the United States. Ultimately, when you oppress people and you inflict terrible violence on them, it comes back to you. The answer, I think we're rapidly Democrats are realizing that partition is no longer possible. And the core principle in Israel Palestine has to be the same one we're fighting for here, which is that people deserve equality under the law, irrespective of what religion or ethnicity they are. It also didn't work in South Africa, and you said apartheid. Um, this is what um, the, 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 the far right in, in uh, Israel and this Kahanist sort of movement really wants, a foundational desire to have as few non-Jews in the country as possible, greater powers to crack down on the judiciary, greater segregation between Jewish and non-Jewish populations, greater crackdowns on freedom of the press, freedom of assembly, freedom of speech, and also religious rule, which sounds like what we're dealing with in this country as well. And you also mentioned Jim Crow that sounds like it has shades of that. And I wonder, you know, people got very upset with Congresswoman Pramila Jayapal when she called Israel a racist state. She did take it back. But, but is apartheid 
it, it, it doesn't feel defensible. Uh, and I wonder if you're starting to see a change in the way that Americans think about um, if if this is, as you call it, apartheid, whether we think about it and whether media is trying to speak about it in a different way. Yes, there, there's a shift going, going on. Part of it is that Palestinians who were long absent from this conversation are now getting being having the ability to speak their own truths and people are hearing them talk and more people are going. And I can just tell you from personal experience, um, even when almost anybody who goes and sees what life is like for Palestinians without basic rights, no matter yeah. how much they sympathize with Israel, they're horrified by that. People yeah. in America are realizing the struggle we're fighting here for equality and against ethno-nationalism is the same struggle we need to support in Israel-Palestine. Yeah, absolutely. And people are throwing rocks and fighting back because they don't know what else to do. And I don't know how you can't empathize with people who have no rights and no freedom and are quickly losing their homes and their land. It is so tragic. Uh, Peter Beinart, thank you. I really appreciate always getting to talk with you. Thank you. That is tonight's readout. Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home.